Welcome to another edition of Cloud Unfiltered. This is a special edition at KubeCon in Chicago. And today my guest is Rotem. Did I pronounce that right? Rotem. How do you say it? Rotem. Rotem. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, my, my English accent probably does not do it justice. <laughs> yeah, I, I grew up in the States, so I, I, I have good experience with people having a What's your name? Time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you Where, do, you where'd you grow up in the States? I lived in, in, uh, in the Valley, in uh, Sunnyvale for two years, and one year in uh, Brookline, Massachusetts. Oh, wow. Yeah. Cool. I'm from New Jersey, so it's, you know, if you can't tell from my voice, um, a, yeah. a little bit. But actually, I grew up in New York most of my life. So uh, anyway, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so glad to have you. Thanks a lot for having me. And uh, so, you know, our mutual friend got in touch with me and said, you got you to check out this, this technology that's, that's a little bit different. And, um, you know, as we talked, I found out that, you know, it's, it's really taking what, what we've already done in, in a lot of other infrastructure yep. and applying it to database. So maybe you could start out and just explain, you know, where did this come about and what is this technology? Okay, good. So uh, my name is Otem. I'm the CTO and co-founder of a company called Ariga. And we're based in Israel. And part of my job, I am the, one of the creators and maintainers of an open source project called Atlas. Atlas lets you manage your database schema as code. So it's basically applying principles that we know from projects like Terraform, but to the inside of the database. So, yeah, I mean, so I've, I've, I have questions here. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> that's good. That's your job. Yes, that's my job. So... Um, why do people, first let's start off, why do people want to manage database as code? What would have spawned this? Uh, great question. So uh, just to, to, to bring our, our listeners up to speed. So uh, most applications, especially cloud native applications, are backed by some persistent storage. Uh, more often than not, that storage is a relational database, mm -hmm. uh, which means that the data has some structure. The structure is called the schema. Right, so we have some tables and columns, and columns have types, and we have indices and, and foreign keys, and, and we have some schema that defines the structure of the data. Now, uh, as we know, uh, applications are living organisms, and as our business requirements evolve, our, uh, the data model that our application has of the world evolves as well, which needs to be reflected in changes to the database. So, uh, for example, if we're running an e-commerce application, and we add a new feature for uh, product categories, we're probably going to need to create some tables and create some foreign keys between products and these categories. And this is one of the challenges of people that are uh, building and operating applications in the cloud. They need to manage the database uh, as their application evolves. The, the trouble with databases or the thing that makes uh, all stateful resources more difficult to manage is that they are stateful, right? You cannot just replace uh, your database with a fresh one with a new schema, you need to do this while you are driving, kind of fixing your car while it's still running. So, uh, you know, it's funny because I think of like how this probably evolved in my head, you know, because, you know, you, you, you write a Ruby on Rails app yeah. and you'll say like Ruby, whatever the command was, it's been so long for me migrate. to migrate. migrate. Yeah, that's right. Migrate. Ruby migrate to like create that database mm -hmm. schema and yeah. kind of manage it. But it only does it for Ruby. 
Yep. It doesn't do it for everything else. Exactly. So you have kind of domain specific. If you use Django, you have the similar thing in Django. If you use, you know, so they're all very domain specific. So it okay. sounds like what you're doing is doing it for more generically for anything. Yeah. So so you, you bring me to, to another uh, important point, which what you describe is called generally called migrations, right? Mm -hmm. the, the, for whatever historical reasons, we call the changes of, of, of modifying the database schema. Uh, migrations in in rela relational databases it involves issuing what is called DDL commands so like create table alter table and these things correlate with application versions right so uh, over the years each ORM framework or whatever it is you're using to build applications kind of built its own subset of the capabilities that correlates to uh, what what people developing apps there needed and one of the things that we argue with, with Atlas is that it doesn't make sense for every ORM to reinvent the wheel and build this capa these capabilities uh, privately. Because if you go to um, ORM migration tools, they mo more often than not do not support all the features mm -hmm. in the database, right? So what we build with Atlas is something that we call uh, schema loaders, which is basically very thin uh, integrations that allow us to read the desired schema from the ORM code. So we can basically manage uh, pretty intelligently uh, database changes for whatever framework that we want. So if you use Atlas, is it, how, do you, um, how do you consume it? Is it through an API? Is it through a command line? Is it through all those methods? How do you? <laughs> so uh, uh, Ariel and I, Ariel is my co-founder, we are uh, infra engineers. Ariel worked at Facebook, uh, I worked at, at Nexar. We've been platform engineers, uh, so the answer is all of the above. Because yeah. the, you, you meet uh, schema man management in many points of, your, of the application development lifecycle. So it, it starts with planning, right? Sure. And planning means you run it as a CLI on the developer workstation. Then we package it as a, a GitHub action or a for multiple CI platforms to check your migrations, that you're not going to mess anything uh, dangerous up because problems with the database are really, really difficult and annoying um, to, to manage. Then we have uh, deployments, which you need some way to integrate database changes with continuous delivery. This is why I'm here, by the way. I, I talked about this in, Ar in ArgoCon yesterday. So we need integrations with stuff like uh, Kubernetes, Argo CD, Flux CD, Terraform. So we build all of these uh, CD integrations. And finally, after you already deployed something, you need a way to monitor, right? You need to, to, to detect like drift detection. How do I know that there haven't been any uh, manual changes to the database? How do I know that uh, all of my um, tenants in a multi-tenant system are at the latest version? And what we've dis discovered is that surprisingly, even organizations that are really forward in their DevOps journey, in a surprisingly large amount of the cases, database changes are rolled out either manually or semi-manually. Yeah, I mean, because if I think about what I do, if, I, if I'm going to deploy something to the cloud, um, or even anywhere, usually in an automated fashion, and the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to automate you know, usually I'll have a shell script yes. that will have what I need to, to, you know, input into the database to start it out. Yep. 
and that'll be part of the schema of, of things that I have to execute in order to get this thing up and along with Terraform, along with, you know, whatever, whatever, you know, stuff that I need, yep. it'll all be in a folder together usually. Yes. And usually you'll have to run something to do all those things. Yes. So this is kind of cutting down on that and also giving you more, um, more assurance mm -hmm. that the things are going to work yeah. and that if they did or didn't work, what, what happened? Yes, yeah, that, that, that's a, a very correct way of, of putting it. What we uh, presented yesterday in, in, in ArgoCon, I presented this with, with Kostis from, from CodeFresh, is that we show that um, there are many anti-patterns when it comes to deploying database changes. The, the top one is manual, right? You don't want to do stuff manually. It's stressful, it's not repeatable, you get uh, your error prone. So you need some level of automation. And what most organizations that are not using Atlas are doing today is that they are wrapping tools that most of them were conceived something like 18 or 20 years ago in a, a container and then running that either as a job or as a pre-sync hook in Argo CD or something like that. Now we have a lot of respect for these uh, projects like uh, Liquibase and Flyway because they paved the way to database automation, right? Before that, you had people running, either you had a human DBA that would, you, know, you would need to sync up with before you're rolling out a version of your, your application, or you were just uh, clicking your way through some UI, or maybe you had a script if you're really advanced and, and, you, and you would uh, run that. And tools like Liquibase and Flyaway and basically all the migrate tools for the ORMs paved the way to uh, database automation, but they were really focused only on, the, on the, the last part, which is run the script and make sure that it, if you ran one of them, that it's not going to um, run again, right? because you can't create the same table twice. So that's the, the, the main focus of, of what we call migration tools. And it's been a, a surprisingly resilient model of doing stuff, right? because if you look at most organizations, this is what um, people are, are still doing, but there's, there's a problem with that because these tools were conceived at a time where every database had a DBA, right? This function that, by the way, still exists in organization. Many teams don't have, like agile DevOps teams, uh, don't have a DBA anymore. And people are expected to own their own infra and, and you know, just, just deal with whatever complexities exist. And in places that are lucky enough to have a database professional, they are seriously outnumbered, right? It's like you have one to 100 developers mm -hmm. or, or, or something like that. So it's no longer reasonable to think that a database professional is going to review and apply and manage these changes because we are shipping out tens, hundreds of times a day, including um, database changes. So while you do have some level of, of automation, which is great, just kind of wrapping up the, the, the solutions of 2005, 2006 in a container and running it as a Kubernetes job, uh, is, we think is, is not um, good enough. And, and the, the idea with managing database schema as code is basically to start from the beginning, to say, I, the developer, want the database to look like this. We support something that is like Terraform Apply. We do Atlas Schema Apply, which means you connect to the database, inspect the information schema, figure out what the developer wants uh, the, the, the database to look like, 
calculate the diff and then apply it. Or we can let you can keep working with this kind of migrations workflow, but at least the, the, the migration itself is going to be uh, automatically planned by Atlas. So you can basically scale uh, this knowledge of how to make database schema changes safely and put it in the hand of every developer. Right? So you kind of automate this knowledge, codify this knowledge that DBAs used to have, and you put it in the hands of all um, developers. Now in the world of Kubernetes, this becomes really interesting because the way that the, the, the ecosystem developed to kind of deal with stateful resources is the operator pattern, mm -hmm. which I think is just is just fascinating. I'm, I don't know. Uh, I'm happy to talk about that now. But yeah, yeah. Um, so I went to KubeCon for the first time in 2007, and one of the talks that I, I regret I don't remember who gave it, but um, displayed one of the first operators in the uh, in the ecosystem. I'm not sure, but I think it's before even the operator framework and before we had like proper SDKs for this stuff. But this person showed how to manage Kafka, Kafka clusters with, with using the operator model. And the, the rationale was managing a Kafka cluster is, is pretty difficult, mm -hmm. right? There's lots of stuff you need to do, like uh, repartitioning a Kafka topic is, is something you need to think a lot about. Sure. And it's something that a savvy operator knows how to do. And it's a multi-step process. And you need you have like checkpoints along the way that you need to make sure that stuff is working properly, and maybe you need to backup stuff first. And and the idea of the operator model conceptually is, let's say we had the best DBA in the world or the best Kafka operator in the world, and we could codify this decision tree that they make when they they try to bring the system from point A to point B, and we will co codify this in a controller, and the controller is this process very similar to how all of Kubernetes works, which is trying to reconcile the state, mm -hmm. the desired state, and it keeps making progress, right? So if, for example, if I'm upgrading the version of some software, the first step is to take a snapshot of the data, right? So the, the, the control loop keeps running until that step is complete. Now, once it's complete, it can check that it went uh, successfully and then move on to the next phase. So from the um, operator perspective, the operation is very simple, it's just I just changed the version number. Mm -hmm. But all of this like deep domain knowledge that is related to how to operate Postgres from one version to the next is codified in the operator. And this is exactly what we've done for databases with Atlas, right? So you have a piece of software, we, uh, you install some custom resource definitions that define your, your schema, and now it's the operator's responsibility to make all of these uh, difficult decisions and to keep progressing towards the desired state. And the good thing about it is that it's just part of the Kubernetes API, which means that it exposes a, a very explicit uh, status, for example. Like, is this migration ready? Is it done? You know, the same way that you can check with a pod if it's ready. So you can use all of the rest of the Kubernetes tooling to kind of integrate in your workflows. And what we demoed yesterday in ArgoCon is how to use, uh, uh, how to deploy an Argo CD application that consists of uh, migration and an application. The migration is run by Atlas. Once the migration is complete, the status of the migration object becomes ready, and only then does the application progress 
um, to roll out the application version. And this is critical because you really don't want your new version of your application that expects your new Polymer table to be up before the database is ready because you're going to get broken queries. Yeah. Right? So this is, is the, the, the idea that you can really modernize and automate this process by uh, using this um, operator paradigm. So it seems like, you know, you know, uh, first of all, I'm familiar with the whole operator lifecycle. We, we actually, I work for Cisco and we, we acquired Bonsai Cloud, yep. which had uh, Kafka operator, login yeah. operator, a bunch of those different operators. Um, and, and so, you know, definitely I love the operator, you know, kind of uh, concept. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, to me, the, the power of Kubernetes is the API. That's, that's always been. I agree. And, and the more that you can put in there and work out of one way, to me, it's, it's the way to go. It's the way that I like to go. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, and the, for those who don't know, who are listening that, you know, an operator is something that's an extension to Kubernetes that gives you the power to use the API to do something that it wasn't initially intended for. I think that's probably the best way to yeah. <laughs> to to kind of kind of use it. So then it shows up within the API itself, yeah. and uh, which is amazing. And uh, but but I also think that this is you know just listening to your story about it, and and I love this because by the way I'm I'm an origin story person, so I love to understand like why something came about. It's usually something that you bang your head against the wall for a certain amount of time that that you know this this kind of stuff comes out. But I kind of feel like this is just the beginning. You know, because I feel like what you have is you have a control point, and that control point is the control of the databases. Yes. And once you have that, then you could start to say, okay, well, let's run services against that that say, like, okay, is this set up optimally? Yep. Uh, what is the security of the database? You know, is it has anything changed? You have to understand that is if the database has changed and how it was changed manually or or automatically. And then you know, obviously, you know, everybody's talking about AI, but then you could use you know, queries to figure out like, okay, well, what are the responses you're getting and what can you do about those responses and things like that. Cool. So uh, you mentioned origin stories. So I think, I think it's, a good, it's a good point to, to, to mention ours. And I started by saying that Ariel and I, uh, we were, were both kind of infrastructure platform developers. We worked together at the infrastructure team at IronSource uh, when um, we worked on many types of uh, infrastructure to support developers specifically around working with databases. Ariel did something very similar when he worked at, at Facebook and there he uh, developed an open source, an ORM for Go that's called Ant. <laughs> Ant is actually, when he left Facebook, we were very lucky to have uh, Facebook, then Meta, right? to have them uh, donate this to the Linux Foundation. So we actually uh, the stewards of, of this project that became uh, really huge. And Ant came with a, a very distinct philosophy that is called schema as code. You, you can recognize it from uh, what we have for, for Atlas. And the idea with Ant is that it, it opened a very kind of DevX-focused uh, workflow where you define the entities in, in, in code. And then you can generate lots of stuff from them. You can generate gRPC servers, you can generate GraphQL servers, you can generate open API. And I'm not talking just about translating the spec, but actually the, the implementation, which made this a very, very uh, loved and, and popular project. And this was kind of something that, that existed, started to take off. 
And in 2021, we raised the, the seed for Auriga to, to build something around ants. And we knew of a lot of, of really um, frustrating problems of working, building applications that involve databases. And our initial idea for Auriga was to build something that is called the operational data graph. I don't think we've ever spoken about this publicly, so you have a... <laughs> uh, uh, an opportunity to, to tell the, to tell the story, and our idea was, we knew of the pains of building applications that involve multiple data stores, like you have a, a relational database for most of your data data model, you have a Redis cache for the stuff that you have some Elastic uh, Elasticsearch cluster for stuff that needs search. If it was today, it was you have some Pinecone for for vector search, and uh, you have this single even single microservice that has like multiple um, storage backends. Mm -hmm. And there's lots of very, very annoying engineering problems to solve, yeah. from transactions to observability, uh, security. And our initial idea, and it still is, by the way, but our initial idea was to build this platform that would let you unify multiple databases into as if they were one. Like you, can you run migrations against most multiple databases? Uh, as if they are one, can you build automatically generate a GraphQL server that queries multiple uh, uh, databases in one request? And we said that we started to build that. So we started with two things. We said we needed to build some DSL to describe the data, which mm -hmm. we did. And we need to build some um, tool to manage the schemas, because how are we going to automate this stuff if we don't have control? And then we built Atlas. And then kind of accidentally in Jan last, last January, we kind of accidentally made it to the front page of Hacker News. <laughs> With this project, that was supposed to be just a, a step in the way of building the operational data graph. And we realized how much this is an unsolved problem and kind of deserves its own company, actually. Now, we still have our North Star to build this stuff to, to, to unify database management and organization, but we feel that schema management for the time being is just such a, 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 a big and important problem that we are really focused on executing on that. And just to share a bit of numbers, so you know, you probably hosted some some open source founders on this show, right? Absolutely, and lots of them. <laughs> measuring open source projects is, is notoriously difficult because you don't have like analytics and, and but one of the things that we do measure is is downloads. It's just how many times we have like a, a binary, a Docker image, a Terraform provider. So we have a bunch of assets that people can download. And sure. we're just, to get a, a, a gist of what's going on, we're measuring how many times this thing is downloaded. So we started this year with something like uh, 2,000 downloads per week, which was pretty, pretty good. Yeah. And, and But next week, projections say we're going to cross 30,000 wow. dollars a week. So we, this, this, just this thing that we, we thought would be like a sidekick to the real deal is growing like 30% per month. And, and Which shows the need. Yeah, so it really shows that schema management is, is really an, an unsolved uh, problem. Now, you mentioned some of our ideas of where do we branch out once we uh, kind of really solve this, this schema management problem. So. Um, there's lots of really interesting uh, places that we can go. Some, some of them are the ones that, that uh, 
you mentioned, we think, for example, especially for organizations, once they get you know past like 50 developers, that database, um, managing database security access and coordinating this with the DevOps uh, release flows is also a very uh, interesting problem. So one of the things we're gonna release next quarter is the ability to manage stuff like role-level security and uh, database roles and, and all sorts of stuff. So plenty more to go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is, there, is there the thought of like almost objectifying it, like, like making objects of databases so that you can have a front end and it doesn't matter which database backend you use, you can just kind of plug them in and out or? So database uh, interoperability is a big topic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, from being ORM maintainers, I can say that, that it's, it's a lot of work, but it's, it's definitely doable. Yeah. But I think that the decision to switch a database is a really big and rare one. So okay. it's, while it's interesting as an engineering problem, uh, it's not recurring enough to, gotcha. to, to be like a, a main uh, business. For example, all of the database providers, um, including the, the public clouds, have teams building like database migration tools, not our migration, but you know, how do I switch from Postgres to MariaDB, right? Because this is their business, they need to onboard uh, people. And we've gotten requests from some of these vendors to help out with, with, with these uh, initiatives, but uh, we're, we're not yet convinced that it's, it's um, you know, gonna be a good business model. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. Yeah, no, so, so what, whatever happened to the Ent what, what, is the, what is the other piece? The Ent? Ent. 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 Entity Framework. Entity uh, Framework. It's an Entity Framework for Go. It's uh, alive and kicking. It's, yeah. it's growing like crazy. We're actually not working on it as much as, as we'd, we'd like because it's super fun. It has this amazing community and lots of contributions. Uh, but we, we have a, a duty to our investors you know, to, <laughs> to build. We don't think that an ORM uh, is the right place to monetize. It's kind of too deep into your code, yeah, yeah. And we want the thing to be really, really open source. We're actually using Ant exclusively to build our own platform, so we're really kind of pushing feature that we need. We're accepting uh, pull requests from from uh, lots of other companies that that, that are using it, but um, currently it's kind of this uh, this sidekick that that uh, we really enjoy working on, but but it, it's not our prime focus uh, today. Yeah, which brings me to a, you know, kind of a, a question is, is how do you do open source right? You know, because it's like, you know, I, some companies use open source as a tool for their, for their closed source. Some companies, uh, I think do it better, will use open source as, to solve a solution and then, you know, work with the community mm -hmm. uh, to kind of validate it and and to, to interact with it which I think is the better way but but how do you think you know what's your perspective on doing open source in a way that's that you're you're giving but you're also you know obviously have to monetize it because yeah. otherwise so you can't so exist you're, so you're asking about uh, building an open source company yeah and so you can look at it at, at multiple ways I think the cynical way to look at it is to say open source is a is a very extreme version of, of freemium Right, but there's no kind of um, any special intrinsic value to it being open source. It's just a way that the cool kids, right, the people that are making technical decisions are more prone to adopt stuff 
if it's open source. This is a very, I think, like practical and, and, and cynical way maybe of looking on it. Uh, then you have on the other e extreme is um, everything should be extremely open source and like you should put stuff in a foundation and not allow the company to touch or direct it, let the, the community purely uh, direct it. And I think while it's doable and we have some, some companies that have, have built large businesses this way, I think that in many cases um, it can be very difficult. So I think uh, all open source founders are struggling with this exact question that, that uh, you raised. And for us, for, for Ariga, we're building uh, Atlas Cloud, which is obviously not, not open source, or not obviously in our case, we chose that our cloud component will not be open source. And we really truly believe that the best kind of experience that we can deliver to users is uh, unlocked by using a, a shared state in, in the cloud. I'll give an example just from a, a, a pull request that I reviewed just while I was, I was waiting for our meeting. So when, you're, when a developer is planning uh, migration locally on their workstation, they have checked out a branch from the master branch, the main branch of, of their team. Now, in the meantime, if someone had merged a new migration, right, they're working on the base of some uh, not real version of the database, right? Because, for example, two developers in two different branches might introduce a column of the same name, right, in which the first one will succeed, but the second one will get some conflict. Now, uh, you might say, okay, this will be caught by Git conflict. But this doesn't happen because they are generated with different file names and then the no, no conflict occurs. Now, what we've built into Atlas open source is this, we use this sum file to force a git conflict in the merge, right? We have like this index file that has some uh, hashes of the files and there's a mechanism there um, that kind of enforces a git conflict in case I don't have the most recent version of the, of the migration directory. In the cloud, what we're doing is that uh, because this directory is synced to the cloud, while you are planning your migration automatically, Atlas will tell you, listen, you don't have the latest copy. So unless you want to fix it later, you better fix it <laughs> now. So this is only uh, unlocked by, by a cloud supporting your team, right? So sure. we think it's just a small, like a tiny feature, but there's lots of uh, these examples where we think that it's much better for teams to use Atlas Cloud because it enables better collaboration, better safety, uh, governance, defining policies, and, and in general, like improve developer uh, productivity. So, so that's one place that we're, we're building value, saying Atlas Cloud is gonna be a better version, not because you know um, we gated features, but because it has stuff that is just inherently a better, yeah. a better experience. And in addition, uh, we think there are enterprise features that um, just make sense to, to, to yeah, charge money course. for. I'll give, I'll give the, an example. Uh, if you're using an enterprise database that's not open source and you're paying tens or $100,000 a year for it, it makes sense that you, you, know, you, yeah. you pay Ariga for a license to use the driver for this database. So we're kind of trying to uh, find our way between between these two these two models, and um, in the in in addition, like 
the last thing, which is also relevant, is that a lot of successful open source companies, with I think with Red Hat being like the, the prime example, understand that in order for enterprises to really, really use open source software, they need uh, support and professional mm -hmm. services. While this is kind of from an economic perspective, it requires labor to scale. But I think in this day and age, we have ways to use technology to, to also uh, improve that. And so we have like platform teams coming to us telling us, listen, we're now at 100 developers. We have eight programming languages, six different databases. We want to streamline schema management because we can't get a hold of like compliance can't know where we have PII and uh, operators need like one tool that they can look at because they can't, you know, uh, they don't want to learn about the differences between Rails and Django. We need some, some like single uh, language in the middle. And mm -hmm. to this organization, this, this is what Atlas can do. And obviously with, with commercial support and some additional features, it, it's also something that um, can become valuable. But we look at it not, I, I, I hope that, you know, if, if we look in retrospect, you judge us not as being cynics, but as seeing uh, we really believe in, in, in standards and in open source and community really enjoy this. But we're trying to find a way that, you know, uh, in addition from, you know, paying the bills, we want to provide for our families yeah. and to build a successful Of course. Yeah. And nobody should fault anybody for that, you know, because it's, it's really tough. I mean, and I honestly think it's tougher for people that start out in open, open source to create a business around that because people yeah. are very judgmental about what you do. And, and honestly, people have to make a living. You know, you, you know, if you, you do it initially because you find a solution. And then like we were talking about origin stories, you find something that needs a solution. Yep. And, but, but you can't survive that way, you know, especially if you're putting all your effort into that. You know, yeah. I, you know I have a day job and I, I couldn't do this mm -hmm. if, if I didn't have a day job, you know. Yep. So it's the same thing, you know. So, so I'm, I'm always... You know, uh, it's it's but but it's it's a, it's a tough thing. It really is, and it's probably one of the tougher things that you probably have to deal with rather than product, rather than you know. So we're we're both very technical co-founders, right? And and our and uh, TLV Partners, the, the firm that originally like did did our seed round, is really, um, you know, this is part of their model to to invest and and to kind of grow technical co-founders uh, into business people, which you know still still struggling with that. I really enjoy being in KubeCon, you know, just with my fellow geeks. But, yeah. uh, but I think that many technical co-founders reach out to open source as the kind of go-to-market strategy, not necessarily because it's the right thing for the thing that they're building, but because it's maybe it's the cool thing to do. It's just the, the thing that I know best because I've been an open source user since. Yeah, yeah. of course. So you know what I didn't ask you though is what databases do you support or does it matter? Yeah, so actually supporting a database with Atlas is is a, is not a small undertaking because we do a very deep understanding of the database information schema. We put a lot of time to study all of the stuff that can developers can accidentally do to damage. So we so building a driver for Atlas is actually a pretty intensive. Uh, undertaking in R&D, which is why we focused initially on the, the big uh, open source projects. So MySQL, Postgres, SQLite, and uh, we have okay compatibilities with some of their kind of Postgres compatible, MySQL compatible, but 
uh, I, I wouldn't go as to claim as we have like full uh, full support for them. We recently uh, put in beta uh, and Microsoft SQL Server a driver. We're still on the fence of whether it should be uh, free or or it's currently free free to use and, and to try out, but it might end up in an, in an enterprise uh, package. So focused on the popular um, SQL, the relational databases. And one of my personal dreams, because it, when, when, when I was working at Nexar, I had, I had the pleasure of working with large uh, Elasticsearch clusters and you know, trying to maintain indexes and doing kind of sort of migrations for, for Elastic. So we're, we have our eye on, on non-relational databases. And okay. part of our journey to, s to build this kind of, we didn't talk about the, the name of the company. Yeah, I was gonna, that was one of the things I was gonna get to is why the name of the company? So Ariga. <laughs> In uh, in Hebrew, it means weaving, okay. weaving of fabric. So kind of connecting everything into That's one. That's cool. Yeah. So this is our our north star is to connect everything into this one topology, this one thing that is managed in the same way. And so we have our hope, uh, have our sights, uh, hopefully next year, <laughs> to to get into Elastic, into other uh, non non relational databases. That's awesome. So I'm going to ask you one other question because we're getting towards time. Is you are at KubeCon, and what is it that interests you? What are, what what excites you about here? What technology? What I, I somebody that said there's so many video games and things here. That's that's we're fun. Like what is it that that you're excited about when you're here? So I, I wrote this on. Uh, I'm going to tell a joke and then I get yeah, you yeah, a proper good. answer. So I, I wrote this on LinkedIn today. So some people say that conferences are. Um, are about you know fabricating new uh, business relationships. Some people say it's about uh, you know exchanging like connections, but I think it's it's about exchanging fabric. And uh, <laughs> so so the the I, I love the swag. No, I'm kidding. Uh, I think that KubeCon is is an amazing hub of innovation. Just to you know like hang around in the in the showroom to listen to the keynotes. And to kind of get a feeling for for what's like the beat of the of the absolutely of the, of the uh, industry, I've been following uh, Kubernetes for for a very long time. I'm really interested in what's going on in in uh, in WebAssembly. I think there's going to be some yep. uh, very cool technology still looking for for its use case. But I'm really keen into into uh, what's going to happen there, and I hope uh, exciting stuff. It's funny because I was talking to. Every year I, I, I ask this, this is the last question I ask every guest. And it's funny because I get like that, that, that beat of, of what people are talking about that year. One year was like totally eBPF. One year was WebAssembly. And it's like, I'm trying to figure out what that pulse is right now yeah. for, for this year. And I haven't kind of figured it out yet. I know AI a little bit of, obviously that that's an easy yeah. one. Uh, but you know, I'm trying to figure out what this, what the pulse is right now. <laughs> It's a good question. I think I know that Gen AI has made uh, lots of waves in yeah. this past year, and you know, we've, some good, some bad. <laughs> yeah, we, we've adopted it mostly as as, as users, you know, yeah. like Copilot and ChatGPT, like sure. just in our in our day to day uh, lives. We did some experiment of doing like sprinkling some Gen AI into our product, but it it, it just felt out lame. We didn't we didn't end up like releasing it. It was yeah. a fun kind of hack. Yeah, of course. Kind of thing, but but. Um, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure it will find its way into 
infra into the yeah it's, it's it's interesting you know everybody thinks like ai is going to come and take away their jobs and really like you know it's it's like i tried copilot too yeah. uh you know when i'm programming and unless you understand the language like you know it's funny because like if i do something in go and if i don't import something or, or do something in a way that i i knew i had to do that it could even the imports like it'll be circular because it'll just keep going importing yeah. the same thing over and over and over again so if you didn't know that it was doing that mm -hmm. and you didn't know like what what to put as you know it would it wouldn't create the code you wanted so you I still know. have to understand what you want to do because it's, it's not going to do it for, it's not going to do it all for you i think the one one population that maybe this technology at this point it might get better yeah, yeah. does a disservice to is more junior developers yeah because we end up in code review lots of time like seeing snippets of code that kind of kind of don't make sense and we ask our developers and you're at home listening <laughs> uh and and uh, we ask them what is this and they're like copilot right? <laughs> and and i think that if you have good fundamentals right it's like ChatGPT. if you're a good writer ChatGPT is going to help you, you know, scaffold something and then you're going to work on it. Yeah. But I think that if you kind of take it like as gospel, you're going to produce bad, bad work. Yep. And uh, I think it's, it's helpful when you're learning, you're, you need to do something quickly in a domain that you don't have expertise and you can kind of try to do uh, small stuff. And I think that if you're a seasoned developer, it's definitely fun to have this co-pilot kind of Sometimes it's annoying, to be totally honest. Yeah. <laughs> and I think the funniest part is that uh, when you get like proper hallucinations, yeah. I don't know if that happened to you. So, yep. so we asked it to write some, you know, to solve some problem. And it told us about some Go package. And it looked like the, the maintainer was someone that, you know, has lots of other similar. And it did exactly the thing. It had a beautiful API. And then we went to look for it on GitHub. <laughs> And it, it just wasn't there. That's so funny. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, on. This has been amazing. And I wish you the utmost success. Thank you. And um, I'm curious to see where it goes. Thanks a lot. All right. Thank you. All right. All right. Goodbye.